Hey everyone, this is Chris and Sandy, been with the Chris and Sandy Show. We get up close and personal with some amazing guests. And today, like I say on every episode, we've got a great show for you today. We've got my friend Chris Widener coming on, and he's done some great things in speaking. He's author and all. Uh, he has been named one of the top 50 speakers in the world and is member of the Motivational Speakers Hall of Fame. He has 22 books that have sold millions of copies in 14 languages. He's also spoken all over the world since 1988 to crowds as large as 25,000 people. His latest book, which we will talk about too, is called Lasting Impact, How to Create a Life and Business that Live Beyond You. And I think it's going to be a really interesting conversation we have today. So, Chris, are you here? I am. <laughs> How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. <clears throat> it's, it's our pleasure. Um, you know, we're in a crazy year this year, and I always like to start the show out the same, get the big elephant in the room out the way. Um, and, you know, even though I speak to a lot of artists, you know, as a speaking career, you kind of do this almost the same thing as artists do because you're trying to move people with your voice. So being this year, how has COVID affected you, and what are you doing to maneuver to get through the, all this? Well, I guess in a way it really hasn't affected me much. It's affected the way I do things, but you know, mm -hmm. people have to pivot all the time, right? So obviously not a lot of live presentations. Uh, I did a live presentation here in uh, – um, well, we stopped in March. I think my last speaking engagement was the first week of March, and my, my next one wasn't until mid-September. So uh, yeah. you know, as we navigate back into live, but I've done a ton of virtual speaking engagements all over the world for people. Oh, well, you know, for us, like, you know, our show has really gotten crazy through this time period because, you know, we started January 3rd with the original plan was to interview 100 guests. That, we thought, you know what, if we, did a, if we interviewed 100 people first year, we're probably ahead of the game because I don't know too many hosts that can say they've done 100 interviews in their very first year of launching their show. So I thought, great goal. Then COVID happens. And I remember – because, of course, when we started, it was more of an artist show. So I remember telling Sandy, you know, these artists are going to need a place to talk. You know what? Where there's crisis, there's always opportunity. And I was like, you know what? This could be our year to shine. And because of that, you are now our 243rd interview for the year. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, COVID sped things up for you. <laughs> yeah, because, cause, you know, before COVID, <clears throat> you know, people were busy. And it was really hard to lock people in. You know, you, you had to, go, you know, you send this it, this date and that date. Nope, no good. That and so after COVID, it was like, okay, they're all free. You know, and yeah. it was so much easier to lock people in. And it was like, okay, this is good. We can we can just explode this. And because of that, I mean, I told Sandy, you know, five years from now, if our show is like a Bobby Bones show type thing, when we look back, we're going to be able to say, you know what? COVID is a big reason. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you know, that's one of the things I've been telling people as they mm -hmm. as they go through this in my in my virtual speak speeches is mm -hmm. there's a difference between accepting and it's a, it's an attitude shift. One says, "Oh well, yeah. it has to happen. I may as well get on board." The other says, "This is great because it gives me a chance to make some changes." Exactly. I love that attitude, and, and, and you know, I actually found you, I remember years ago, I found you, um, and, and it, you were in some packet with Zig Ziglar, Jim Rohn, it was like 20 CDs I bought, and that's how I was first introduced to you. Well, I can, I can actually tell you, it was 14 CDs and one DVD, and the reason I know that <laughs> is because uh, I owned the company, and um, I, I owned the company, it was called Made partner in 2009 um, but we sold we were selling 50 to 75,000 units a month through Costco and Sam's Club so you probably picked it up in Costco oh wow I don't remember where I picked it up it was so long ago but it, that was where I was first introduced to you yeah yeah for sure <laughs> so tell everybody a little bit of um, where you're from and kind of your backstory that helped you get to where you are today you know kind of take two three four minutes just to tell us who you you know the story behind you Sure. Uh, I was born and raised in Seattle, Washington. Um, we, uh, my, my mom and dad were both born there in the greater Seattle area, moreover in Bremerton, um, where the, the big naval ship kind of had a setback. Obviously had a setback. When I was four years old, my dad died. 
And even though he was making a lot of money, he was making ninety thousand dollars a year in nineteen seventy. Uh, he passed then. away. He had thirty thousand dollars worth of life insurance. So we ended up having to move out of that house. And long story short, it became a real downward spiral. Uh, ended up living twenty homes, went to eleven different schools, oh, was wow. shipped off to live with relatives twice, once in the fourth grade, once in the ninth grade. Uh, started drug into drugs the eighth grade, smoking opium, um, made most of my money growing up betting horses at Longacre's house track, uh, horse track and selling uh, scalping mariners and Seahawks tickets outside the kingdom. So uh, you kind of get an idea of where my life was going. And um, finally, summer before my senior year, I got things figured out, got switched around, ended up eking my way out of high school and into a college and got a degree in youth and family work because I wanted to help at-risk kids like myself and uh, ended up speaking right out of college because of my crazy upbringing. I was speaking in high school, summer camps, colleges, universities, junior highs, and and that began my my speaking career. So um, my speaking career really took a big jump, though, in 2002. um, Mm -hmm. I was ghostwriting for uh, Jim Rohn called and asked if I'd write with him. I ended up writing his last book and the Jim Rohn one-year program, and and at the same time, I was running that publishing company where we were selling those audio programs to Costco and Sam's Club. And uh, that's how I got to know the Ziegler family. And then I had a TV show in Dallas in like 2004 to 2007. And uh, Zig, they wanted Zig to do a, a show as well, but he was pushing 80. And, and so they asked me if I would co-host the show with him. So that was another great, uh, you know, opportunity for me to to have a TV show with Zig, and and that's oh, wow. kind of the the long and short of it as to how I ended up in speaking and writing, and I got my oh, wow. second book coming out, and they've been translated into fourteen languages, and everything's going great. Yeah, I remember um, I heard Zig a bunch of times on on tapes and stuff back in the day, and I remember he came and visited Savannah a few years before he passed. And I remember I was so excited to jump on, to, to get get to see him in person. Because, you know, you, you hear the tapes and you hear how excited he is, and you're like, okay, this is going to be great. And, you know, I remember sitting in there, and he starts walking on the stage with this, this cane. And I'm like, oh, God, we're not going to get the zig that I thought we were going to get. And yeah. so he walks up stage. He's barely moving. He gets the mic. And I will never forget the cane dropped to the floor and zig did zig. And I'm like, oh my God, it's a different. He was like in a zone during the step. And then when it was over, he grabbed his cane and he barely walked off the steps again. You know, <laughs> it, was, it was just amazing to watch the God inspired in him. Because as you know, when you're in that zone, nothing else matters. And for him, it was just, it was just amazing to watch the transformation to go from barely able to walk to all of a sudden the zig i knew from tapes yeah 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 zig was an amazing guy <laughs> so um as you know it's you know when it comes to being a published author and speaker it's tough out there especially with so many people trying to do it um they see you know the glory behind like a you and glory of john maxwell and other people like y'all but they don't see the grind and the sacrifice that it takes to get to the top of y'all's level. So if you want to take a few minutes to tell people some of the sacrifices you've had to make through the years just to get to where you are. Well, I think the first thing is travel. You know, you're, you're on the road a lot. And I always – I made a decision to make less money than my friends in order to be mm-hmm. home more often. Um, right. I have some friends that, that spent 10 years on the road, 250 days a year. You know, and, mm-hmm. and that's twenty five that's twenty five hundred days over ten years. And you know, you do the math, that's about eight years you know, <laughs> losing mm-hmm. your to being able to see your children uh grow yeah. up and those kinds of things. So I think the most I've ever done in a year was about seventy uh seventy oh, wow. speeches, which still turns into about a hundred and forty days a year. Um, but mm-hmm. I decided I wanted to see my kids grow up and go to their games and, <laughs> and all that. And and um, so, you know, there's a sacrifice that way. I think, too, there's a sacrifice anytime you stick your neck on the line and take a position because mm-hmm. you're going to have people that are going to tell you you're horrible. 
and that you're stupid <laughs> and you don't know what you're talking about and, you know, all that. So when you stand up and, you know, when you pop out of the hole to say something, there's always going to be somebody that fires at you. So there, there's that aspect mm-hmm. to it. Um, but, you know, it's um, um, a lot of when you're first, especially when you're first starting out, you know, it's not like you're standing on a, a 25,000 person stage with people chanting your name. <laughs> you know, that comes down the road if you're good at it. Uh, but the first thing, it starts with, you know, I, I remember I got asked to, this is a classic. I got asked to come down yeah. to Paso, Texas to give a speech. And uh, we said, okay, and it was a promoter. And we said, how many good people are going to be there? 300. Okay. Uh, great. So then we, we get about a month out and we're like, well, we need to ship the product. So we're going to get it ready. How mm-hmm. many people are going to be there? A hundred. Okay. Actually, no, they told me 500 at first, a month out, uh, they told me 200, uh, like two weeks out, they told me 100. And then a week out, they mm-hmm. said 50, we're going to have 50 oh, wow. people there. And, um, and I'm like, Oh boy, here we go. But at least we hadn't shipped the product yet. So we shipped the product that we would sell to 50 people. We got mm-hmm. there. There was four people there. But oh, the wow. stupid thing is, the, the stupid thing is, they still kept it in the room with 500 people. So, so here I am so in a bad. room that has 500 seats to it, with four people in it, for me to do a three-hour seminar, and that's more like what it's like to start in the speaking business. You know, so <laughs> I remember they asked Peter. Lowe, they asked Peter Lowe one time, "How did you end up? Uh, how did you end up doing the biggest success seminars in the world?" And he said, I started by giving the smallest success seminars in the world. <laughs> and uh, the first person, the first time I ever did, had my wife and her mother. So that was it in the audience. So, you know, mm-hmm. you've got to grind it out as you're building your name and your reputation. Yeah, yeah. I remember um, Stephen Furtick from Elevation Church one time said, I'll never forget this, where he was preaching. And he says, I that you've got to get good at preaching to yourself before anybody will ever listen to you. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and I'm taking it. That's probably the same for speaking. You probably have done that many times in the mirror. Like I've got friends of mine that have spoken in front of thousands of people who have asked about this. And I was like, what was it like your first time in front of a big audience? And they said, Oh, I've played that out in my mind thousands of times. So it was no big deal. Yeah, I I actually really never practice. I I never have. Oh wow! Um, I've got the gift of gab. It's it's simply a gift. <laughs> um, I, you know, I've been I, I all the time growing up. I don't know. Remember when in high school it was time for uh, uh, homeroom and you'd go in and the buzzer would beep. You'd go in, you'd sit down, and you'd uh, stand up and and the the um, loudspeaker would come on and it was the announcements for the day, you know, here's what's for lunch, you know, fish sticks and corn and, mm-hmm. and the JV team, JV football team needs to be by their bus by three thirty for the game at, you know, at the rival high school and, you know, and all the different announcements. And then let's all say the pledge of allegiance together. That was me. I did the morning announcement oh, wow. in high school and uh, in college I did uh, the, the in-house basketball so I was courtside and announced all the starting lineups and, you know, when people scored and did all that. So I've, I ended up doing radio. I had a drive time show in Seattle. And, and um, uh, so it's always been around speaking. And so mm-hmm. the, the speaking part is more natural. I always, people always ask, do you ever get afraid? And I said, but if you were to ask me to come and, you know, sing a song in front of 15 people, I'd be, I'd be more afraid to sing a song in front of 15 people than to speak. In- so um, it's just, it's never been, uh, it's never been anything that's terrified me or that I've, I mean, I mm-hmm. do work at, I work hard at becoming yeah. better. You know, I constantly yeah. try new material. I realize what works, what doesn't work, but I've perfected the, the keynote speech that I give. I've done it, you know, a thousand times. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, and so I, I know where everybody's going to laugh. I know where everybody's going to lean <laughs> forward and be thinking because I've just done it mm-hmm. so many times to so many different groups, but not really something that's ever, you know, been a challenge. Yeah, and I know exactly where you're coming from because I remember when we first did the show, January 3rd, I told my wife I was scared to death, but I wasn't scared of the talking part. I knew that. I, I can create conversation. You know, if there's dead air, I can I can make up something if I have to. You know, I, I like you said, the gift the gap. I can talk, and I've done it for years. And so I, I wasn't afraid of that, but I was afraid of technology. You never know what's going to happen with technology. So our first show, I, and I guess God heard me because I'm sitting there 
my first, my biggest fear of this show was that all of a sudden it goes out. And I guess God yeah. said to, uh, to, to me that, okay, if that's your biggest fear, let's go on and get that out the way on your very first show. So we're sitting there. We are in the we just about two, three minutes into the conversation with an artist. And I'll never forget, it goes blank. And Sandy comes running into this room because we're all on different phones. She goes, um, um, what's going on? I said, I don't know. <laughs> and then um, Ashlyn, who is the guest, texted me says, what's going on? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what's going on. So we all logged back into the system, and we were still live. It was still going on. And then so we finished it. But And, and I called a friend of mine that night about um, – who's been on this system for years and done 500 shows. And I told him what happened. And he said, you know, I've never heard of that happening ever. And he's never experienced that. And here it is. My very first show, we had to do that. It's never happened since. Yeah. It reminds me my very, very first time my partner and I were on, on uh, radio, we started out subbing for a, a famous radio guy who uh, um, was doing his show out of Seattle. And so, we were weeks. I think his wife had just had a baby. And on the second day that we ever did radio, on the biggest drive time show in Seattle, um, was the day of the Seattle Pacific University shooting. So no, we right. did three hours of radio the first day, and then the second day, about fifteen minutes into the into the show, the news guy walks in and tells us what's going on. And we're like, Oh, okay. We didn't expect to have this happen. Now, what do we do for the next two hours and 45 minutes? And we ended up covering a, a, a major college school shooting um, on our second day in radio. Oh, wow. That, you just never know what's going to happen out there. Um, so, you know, we talked a little bit about the sacrifice side of being a speaker and being an author you know, because of course your time is so valuable. What are a few moments, you know, where you can look back on your career so far and you're like, wow, I got to speak there, or wow, that happened. You know, some big moments now that happened so far. Well, I mean, obviously the biggest speech I ever gave was great. That was 25,000 people. And, you know, it's a lot of fun when at the end of your thing, they're standing on their chairs chanting your name and, you know, all that kind of <laughs> stuff. That kind of stuff is fun. Um, I think of, uh, like, I got to speak in Barcelona um, mm. to probably twelve or 13,000 people, um, and that, that was in the same place where the Dream Team won the Barcelona Basketball Olympics. Uh, so that was, that was really neat. Um, I did a three-day three seminar in uh, St. Petersburg, Russia, and got to see, you know, wonderful Russian people. They were just so <laughs> Uh, I, I used to tell them I, I was there for three days, so you, you kind of cultivate a relationship with the audience. And, and I was telling them how my mother, at, every night my mother was asking me, how was it? What did you, you see? What did you do? She was so fascinated <laughs> that I was in Russia. And my mom was probably, you know, 78 at the time. Mm -hmm. And on the last day, right before my last session, the host said, you know, before – you start, some of the women want to come up here and, and say something to you. So three or four of the ladies came up, and they had created a gift basket for my mother because I'd been oh, telling wow. them about how fascinated my mother was. And it had perfumes, and it had one of those little Russian dolls where you open it up, and there's a smaller doll, and then a smaller doll, and a smaller doll. It had one of those Russian fur hats that goes over your ears. I mean, a, a beautiful handmade scarf. You know, just really, really great, you know, how they they loved that my mother loved that I was in <laughs> Russia. So they sent me a package to take home from my mother. And, you know, um, going to Shanghai was amazing. I've spoken in Shanghai. I, I spoke in Cologne, Germany during Oktoberfest, which was it was fun to speak in Cologne, but it was even more fun to be there during Oktoberfest. And you know, it's just taken me all over the world. I've spoken in Egypt twice, um, once in Cairo and then once in a technology city about uh, an hour outside of, of Cairo. In fact, I think I'm probably the only person in the history of the world who has spoken in both Cairo, Egypt, and Los Angeles on the same day. I got up, oh, wow. I gave a speech in the morning. I went straight to the airport and took a, a, a quick flight to Frankfurt, jumped into a 747. I was up in the bubble in one of those pods, and I fell asleep. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, 13 hours later, or however long it was, I woke up. It was like 6 o'clock at night or something like that in L.A., got in a, a limo, drove straight to the venue, and gave a speech in Los Angeles out in Disneyland. So, you know, that's a unique unique thing to be able to say you spoke in Cairo, Egypt, and Los Angeles on the same day. Yeah, yeah thank God for time zones, right? Because it worked then. <laughs> yeah, technically it- Technically, it was like 36 hours or something like that, but it was but it was also technically on the same day. <laughs> that's that's a pretty cool story. So, yeah. were there ever moments? And um, everybody, every business owner, every speaker, every artist, doesn't matter who, usually have these moments. But were there ever in, any moments where you felt like this? Is it ever? Is your career ever going to take off? And how did you get through those moments? Oh yeah, for sure. Um, you know, uh, I started speaking in 1988, and and you know, life was pretty good, and I did pretty well. And but I'm a very ambitious guy. I don't do anything. Mm-hmm. I don't do anything just to get to a certain level. Like I'm not going to climb halfway up a mountain and then go, well, this is a nice place to sit. Let's just stop right here. <laughs> so, um, so I, I'm 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 an ambitious guy. So I always wanted more. I always wanted to get bigger. And um, you know, it wasn't until 2002 that uh, I was working, probably 2001, I was working with John Maxwell, and, mm-hmm. but I was ghostwriting, so my name didn't go on anything, right? So, um, but that opened the door. That's when Jim Rohn called and asked if I'd, you know, do some stuff with him, and, and then, you know, we started the business in Costco, and, and one of the nice things about that business in Costco is, is that those boxes had 14 CDs and one DVD, and we always had a few famous people because we wanted their names to be on the front, and then uh, we would have four names on the front. It would be three famous people and me. So, uh, you know, it was sort of owner's prerogative to brand myself by, by putting myself in a list with, you know, John Maxwell, Zig Ziglar, Jim Rohn, Dennis Raitley, Tony Robbins, you know, all these guys. So that was very helpful. I love that. And, you know, and that's how what we've done with the show is, you know, we've gotten some pretty good-sized people come on our show. And because of that, it's brought more people because the show looks bigger with that, they're like, oh, so-and-so came on, oh, and so-and-so came on. So now other people now want to come on. <laughs> yep. Yep, exactly. Because I'm one, like you said, you don't want to stop halfway. I'm one that I don't care who you are, how big you are. I will still ask your PR people if you can come on my show. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Because all they can say is no. But sometimes yep, they say sure. yes. I mean, I've, I've had a few people that – that um that responded yes and i'm like oh my god they said yes okay yeah. we got to get prepared <laughs> yeah <laughs> but yeah, like I, sure. I remember i remember the game changer i think for our show went on the music side was um about 2 3 months in and i remember i was frustrated a little bit and i was like asking god is this really what i'm supposed to do you know i can talk the show's not a big – I can do this, but is this what I, where I'm supposed to be? Because I want the show to grow, and it's like we, you know, trying to get the bigger guests on, especially in music, is tough. And it's like, is it ever going to have a breakthrough? And I remember there was this one person I really thought I had a chance to get on the show because I knew her parents. But you know, once they sign with a label, it doesn't matter if you know their parents. Label make those decisions. Not the, there is no leadway there. So I got turned down, yeah. and I'm frustrated. And I told God, okay, what's what am I supposed to do? And I remember about an hour later, I get an email, and it was um, a PR company wanting to get six of their artists on our show. And I'm scrolling through the artists, and I noticed one of them was Anna Christina Cash. And I was like, what if she's part of the Cash family? Look her up. Come to find out, she's married to John Carter Cash who's Johnny Cash's and June Carter Cash's son. And I was like, oh, mm-hmm. this is good. So I thought, of course, I want all six. But can, you, can we get Anna first? And we got Anna first. And because of that, it brought, that brought Carlene Carter on, which brought Jenny Gill on, which, which brought Georgette Jones on, which brought Taylor Lynn on. So all of a sudden, we got a lot of the legacy kids coming on all because of that one situation. Yeah, that's the way it usually works. And and that's the thing about business and you know and whatever career you're trying to make, you don't know where that breakthrough is going to come. Yep, and that's why you just keep plugging away, and the rest is up to God. 
<laughs> you know, don't, don't you wish, though, sometimes he would just appear to you and say, okay, you've got one more day, or you've got five more days, or you've got a year. I, you know, hey, if, if, he, if he just told me, look, just keep doing what you're doing, and, and you will be here in one year. Well, guess what? It would be a lot easier. <laughs> yeah, but I don't know that that's true. I think it would be – I think it wouldn't work because then you'd either – Because then it would be no coast or you'd – You'd get frustrated or you'd get you'd mm-hmm. coast or, you know, if it was going to come up soon, then you'd just coast. If it was a long way away, you'd be frustrated. That's true. So I, I, I don't know that I would want to know. <laughs> That's just because, you know, I always like to explain to people um, on the show that it's, this is what I feel like. And I've got a picture of this big boulder. You're pushing that boulder up the hill. It's only you. And the boulder is really heavy. You can – you're barely moving it. But – you can't see the top of the hill, but you know it's there. It's coming. So when it gets over the hill, it'll take a life of its own. But if you try to look around the boulder, the boulder's going to lose momentum and going to go backwards. So you have to just keep put, put your head down and keep pushing that boulder. And one day, that boulder goes over the hill. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Was there ever a moment in your career where, where you felt like, where you got to that point? And you had that first big breakthrough. What was that moment where you felt like that was a big breakthrough? Um, probably when Jim Rohn called, um, <laughs> you know, because I had been wanting to, to make that breakthrough. I believed mm-hmm. that I was good enough to be at that level. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, it's not just who's the best. It's also reputation and experience and and all those kinds of things. And, you know, by the time they called me, they called me in September of 2002. So, um, you know, I started, basically I started my career in September of 88. So it was 14 years of grinding before I got that phone call. A lot of little tiny events and a lot of high schools and junior Mm -hmm. highs and youth groups and, you know, little things, right? And then 14 years later, mm-hmm. you get one wow. phone call and everything turns. That changed everything. And I think yep. that's the way it is with every type of big – where you can be, have a big career, whether it's speaking, acting, singing. That, that you know, I think that, that the grind is what separates the men from the boys, the girls from the women and stuff because those who outlast the grind like, – like I, I love the story of two guys in a, um, in the woods, and there's a bear. And they both are barefooted. And one guy's sitting down and putting on his shoes. And the other guy says to him, um, You can't outrun that bear. He says, I don't have to outrun that bear. I just have to outrun you. Yeah. And that reminds me of how this industry is. You just got to outlast everybody else. Yep. In many cases, that's true. Because <clears throat> there's a lot of good people. There's a lot of people that deserve to be on that stage, but not everybody's going to make it there. Yeah, and it's just a matter of persevering. And, you know, the music industry is very, very similar. My my daughter goes mm-hmm. to college in, in Nashville, and so when mm-hmm. we go to Nashville, we spend some time in all those honky-tonks. And, and I remember uh, about probably three months ago, we were there. We go into this small little honky-tonk. There's maybe 12 people in the entire place. There's like three mm-hmm. or four bartenders. And there's a woman singing. She looked like she was 35 or 40. And mm-hmm. this woman was so good. Now, I know what people are thinking. Yeah, you know, they're all good. Or, or maybe you just don't know music and you thought they were good. <laughs> I mean, if they were good, they'd have a big record deal or whatever. That's no, I'll not tell you how good this woman. I'll tell you how good this woman was. All of the bartenders had their homing this woman. All of mm-hmm. the bartenders. Now, think about those bartenders. You know, when you work in one of those honky tonks, you're seeing, you know, you're, you, many of them have a different band on each floor, and they're three or four stories tall. So there's three or four bands going at any given time. Let alone they switch out every two hours. Let alone seven days a week. You're talking about a hundred bands a week going through there, and they've seen it all. They've heard mm-hmm. it all. And here are these bartenders. They, they're so astounded by how good this woman was. They all pulled their cell phones out. And I remember looking over at them, and they were just astounded. Their eyes were wide open. And one of them, actually, she made that motion, like, and she turned to the person like, oh, I just got shivers down my arm, right? And so yeah. there's a lot of people who are really, really world class who nobody ever hears of. 
And, yep. uh, and, and so, you know, they're grinding it out. And unfortunately, actually, some really, really good people never do get their break. They, they end mm-hmm. up, you know, in obscurity. There's, there's people who are amazing singers or amazing painters or, you know, whatever, and they never get a chance. They, they, they never mm-hmm. burst through. And um, it is what it is. I mean, it's about all you can say about it. But, you know, you read through like books like The Tipping Point, you realize it's not always yeah. just about how good you are. Sometimes it's right place, right time. Like um, I heard Mark Cuban oh, a few months ago, somebody was talking to him mm-hmm. about being a billionaire. And they said, if you lost it all, how long until you think you could become a billionaire again? He said, oh, I would never become a billionaire again. And he yeah, says, well, why not? He said, well, I guarantee I guarantee I'd be a millionaire. I mean, I could figure out a way to become a millionaire. But he said so much about being a billionaire in most of the time is literally the year you're born, right? So, you know, would Bill Gates have been Bill Gates if he'd have been born 20 years earlier or 20 nope. years later? Nope, never would have been. If he was right there at the moment, he was. He was. I mean, here's the deal. He was born into a wealthy family in Seattle, and I know. I know because mm. I'm raised in Seattle. I, I've got tons yeah. of friends who worked and answered directly to him, reported directly to him. But he graduated from Lakeside High School. Lakeside is where all of the elite, the wealthiest people in Seattle, send their kids to Lakeside. They had access to a computer. No one else had access to a computer. And they had access to teachers who knew people, and, mm-hmm. and so they they were yeah. able and you know to to do that. And uh, yeah. so he was there in in a in a city that valued technology at the birth of technology, and he happened to be the guy. Um, you know, so twenty years later, he'd have never he'd have never become the second richest man in the world. Uh, twenty <laughs> years earlier, same thing, never would have done it. Yep. And that's amazing because people don't realize that, 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 yes, it takes a lot of grind. It takes a lot of work. But there is always a small piece of luck that is involved in every big person. It always is. Yeah, I mean, look at Jeff Bezos. You know, Bezos moved to Seattle, and, and I uh, he was friends with Jeff. He put Jeff in a room with like 10 guys, and he said, mm-hmm. uh, he said okay, you're going to put a quarter million in. You're going to put 100 in. You're going to put 500 in. You're going to put 200 in. And they, they gave him the money, and up they went. You know, wow. 20 years earlier, 20 years later, would have never happened. <laughs> exactly. You just never know. Now, as we move on, I know that you're a big family man. So can tell us a story of your of your wife now, but something that where she's done, went above and beyond. And I know she probably does this every day. But where – where because, you know, it takes a lot to be married to a speaker. So tell us a story where, where she's done something you're like, wow. You know, she definitely gets that this is my purpose in life. Well, I think just navigating the schedules and understanding that, you know, especially during COVID, you know, you're going to be doing, mm-hmm. you're going to be jumping on Zoom calls early in the morning to, to be in Australia and late at night in order to do a morning thing in Europe and, you know, just all the different kinds of things. And just understanding the schedule and the travel, although, you know, our kids are all gone. So Denise comes with me on all the trips and, <laughs> and uh, those kinds of things. And she owns, a, she started and owns a speaker's bureau. And so, oh, cool. um, and so, you know, she, she's got her own business managing speakers and booking speakers. She understands the business. I love that. That's, you know, that's, you know, cause again, you know, I'm a big believer in couples working together who are married. I love that y'all have found a way to combine both of y'all's passions under one umbrella. Like, you know, with our show, even though Sandy's not been on this, this show today, cause our 19 month old daughter, she's kind of attending to, but in most cases she's on the show we do all this together, so I love it when you see couples that have it together like that. Yeah, for sure. <clears throat> and because of you know being a family, we we've kind of got a third co-host that we always bring on, our little eight-year-old. We let him come on and ask one question to each to each guest. So Sandy's going to be real quick and get him on on, and you know our 19-month-old when she gets older, we'll be plugging her in the show too. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Because, <laughs> you know, like I always joke, we're a family affair. And it's funny because I was like, oh, family affair, family affair. Uh, it's like I'm try- I was trying to come up with a media name for our main company. I was like, you know what? I wonder if family affair media could work. Not only were we able to lock in that domain, but, but, the, but the trademark was let go last year. But, oh, this oh. is perfect. <laughs> yeah, that's So I was like, great. okay, this is good. You know, so, so we're trying to run everything under 
Family Affair Media because that really is who we – I mean San and I for 18 years of marriage have been a 24-7 couple for the most part. Yeah. <clears throat> and that's all we've known. You know? <laughs> we, you know, People tell us how unhealthy that is and how this and that, and, and she needs her own life, and I need my own life. And we're like, how long have you been married? Oh, you're not married. Okay. We'll keep doing it, <laughs> and you know, because it's always people, that, you know, because anybody that's been married twenty years, they know if you found a way that works for your marriage, just keep it up. <laughs> yeah, you know, I I I don't have any problems with anybody doing it however they want to do it. If it works for <laughs> if it works for them. You know, it's it's kind of also like you know sometimes people complain about somebody that somebody married, and I'm like, look, mm-hmm. just because I don't like the guy doesn't mean she can't live with him, and you know, or, exactly. or you know, it's like if they're happy, that's really all that matters. Um, mm-hmm. Now, you know, you got to take into consideration if it's family and things like that because it really is true. You don't just marry a a person; you marry yeah, a you family. married a family, but. Um, you know, if if somebody wants to marry somebody and it's healthy for both of them and it's not, you know, nobody's getting beaten or abused and yeah. and that's what they like, you know, have at it. The world is made up of a lot of different people. They're into okay, camping and hiking Christopher and, and other people. With his questions. <laughs> what's your favorite? Hi, Chris. What's your favorite food? What's my favorite food? Yes. Uh, I would probably say steak. Like a good steak and baked potato and a salad is as good a dinner as it gets. <laughs> awesome. And what's yours, little Chris? <laughs> pizza. Pizza? That's probably second. My second is probably <laughs> pizza. <laughs> Bye, gang. Bye. Yeah, he loves. He loves to be part of the show. There are times where the guest has to leave a little early, and he don't get to be, and he gets upset. I'm, you know, but you know, uh, like they yeah. say, I'm training him to, you know, because I've always, you know, one thing I've learned when you watch history, if you're if you teach your kids three skills: how to sell, how to speak in front of groups, and how to negotiate, there's nothing they can't do, no matter how bad the economy gets. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And that's what we're trying to do is make sure that our kids can know those three skills. I mean, anything beyond that is extra, but those three I think are so important, especially in this day and time. Yeah, for sure. So what are some, you know, what advice would you give someone? Because, you know, like you said, you know, it took you 14 years to have that big breakthrough. And, you know, now you've got the Internet and all that. So so people can – Definitely get found easier now than ever, but but that's also a double-edged sword. Everybody can be found easier than ever, so it makes it easier but harder at the same time. So what advice would you give an aspiring um, speaker, an aspiring author to maneuver through this crazy path the next few years? Uh, Don't wait to be found. You go find your own people, and you know it's easier now than ever to find person. I, I always tell people if your job is helping single women with master's degrees who live in Omaha who have two children, I can help you find those people. Facebook, the Facebook advertising, you know, most people say, well, it's a social media company. It's not. It's a data collection company. And the mm-hmm. reason they collect data is so you can reach the people you want to reach. Um, mm-hmm. I just taught a guy how to start a business uh, for dog owners. And for dog moms, basically. And in two months, he has created a $2,500 a month residual income off of that. Um, And he thinks by March he'll be at $30,000 a month in residual income. And and it's all about building tribes. Well, he's not sitting around waiting for dog moms to find him. Mm -hmm. He's creating ads and going after dog moms and driving oh, wow. them to a funnel where he sells them a monthly membership. Well, you could pick any topic. You could pick any topic, and I don't mm-hmm. care what you speak on. There are people who want to find you, um, but mm-hmm. they're never going to find you, so you have to go find them. And, um, and, and, it, and it's – anybody who 
wants to be successful in anything, uh, whether it's the speaking business or plumbing mm-hmm. or whatever, uh, you know, or anything in between, you need to go find your clients rather than waiting for them to hopefully find you. Now, would you say it's harder for like Christian speakers? Because as you know, you know what I've noticed in the church community is in, unless other churches have had you, no churches want you, it seems like. Once churches start bringing you in, then other churches want. So do you think it's harder to start a Christian speaking business? No. It's the same way. It's the same way in the secular realm. If you haven't spoken very many, nobody wants you. So you know you mm. gotta you gotta build your career. Um, but it's the same in the contractor business, right? You're you're not gonna say, yeah. hey, I'm gonna be a contractor now, and <laughs> somebody somebody from New York City calls That's and says, true. hey, can you build us a 30 story skyscraper? It doesn't happen that way. You start out building decks off of people's yards in Indiana, you know, and and from yards from building decks you go to re- renovating kitchens, and from renovating kitchens you go to building a spec house, and you know it. Yeah. it, it the same in every career. You know, Rush Limbaugh, the greatest, uh, mm-hmm. regardless of your political persuasion, he is inarguably the greatest radio, greatest radio broadcaster of all time. Even, yeah. if, even if you're a hardcore radical right winger or a hardcore radical left winger, the facts are the facts, right? Nobody mm-hmm. has ever built a career, reached as many people, made like as much money, or hit as many stations as Rush Limbaugh. Well, he started out in the like ticket sales program working for the Kansas city Royals and he got to know a radio guy. And then he, and then he did a little (laughs) bit of radio and then, and then he went and lived in Sacramento for, for years. I mean, Sacramento. And, uh, (laughs) you know, it's a, it's a, well, first of all, it's in California, but second of all, it's a, it's a town filled with government people. And, uh, you know, he grounded out, nobody knew who Rush Limbaugh was, and uh, he grinded out in Sacramento. And from Sacramento, he, he finally got asked to come to New York City. And I think he, I think he's got where, when he first started in New York City, I think he was on like 11 radio stations. They, they syndicated him like to 11 different places. Well, now I think he's syndicated to over 600 radio stations, and he makes 50 to $100 million a year. Well, pick a person who's successful. They all started grinding it out somewhere. This is the myth mm-hmm. of success. Everybody looks yeah. at successful people and says, wouldn't it be nice to be him? You know, uh-huh. so I, I I speak to a lot of network marketing companies and oftentimes I'll be there and, and there's somebody who's making, you know, a hundred, two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars a month and uh, mm-hmm. they're sitting in the front row and I'll point them out and I'll say to the audience, How many of you would like to get that lady's check? And everybody's yeah. hand goes up, Oh yeah, I want the money. And so I'm like, okay, do the work. You want to, how many of you want to put in thirty years of day to day work like this lady has? And then everybody's hands goes down. And, and, you know, that's the point that a lot of people in network marketing, and I guess success in general, but especially network marketing, don't get. I mean, I used to build network marketing, and I remember I, I spoke to thousands of people on the street just talking to them. And I remember when someone would say, oh, it never worked for me. I mean, they, they weren't saying network marketing didn't work. They were just saying it didn't work for them. And and I would right. always ask them two two questions. It's like, can can we clarify this? And, of course, they're usually nice. So, oh, yeah, 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 go ahead. Um, I was like, first, did you share the products and or opportunity to at least five people a week for two, three, four years? Oh, no. Okay. Okay, Can I back that up with another question? Yes. How many did you share with them just out of curiosity? And the average number was 10 to 12. Yeah. And it was all their family, and they all told them no, and they quit. Exactly. Almost. That, that's, and again, that that's not every story. I mean, I do know that, that like, like in Amway, there's Larry Winters who's got one of them stories that you're like, whoa, where you know he grinded and grinded and grinded, but he had so much growing to do on the inside that he was he'd get them in and push them out, get them in, and push them out, and he grinded for you. He wasn't one of them people. That you know went to the functions and all that, and sat around and then claimed he was in Amway. No, he was in, Amway was in him. He built it at five, six, seven nights a week, over and over and over and over. And after about five, six, five, I think it was fifth year in, he had a team of maybe twenty people at that point. Five years. We're talking five years of grinding. Yeah. 
and yep. and he went to everything. He they, they they went dumpster dive diving to pick up cans just so they can go to the functions and buy products. They did whatever they could to stay afloat in those years. But then the seventh year, he went. Uh, I think the seventh year he went um, Ruby, and they were making about right about a hundred thousand dollars there that year. Three years later, he went their first year as Diamond, which ten years in, they were they made four hundred thousand dollars. Second year. As that, they made 800. Third year is at 1.2 million. So here it is. Most people in those first five, six years would have quit. He didn't. He kept grinding. He just he believed in it so much that he he said he. I remember hearing on the tapes that he said I saw so many changes on the people that stuck with me on my team. He said I couldn't quit on them. He says he says they, he says these were people that they weren't changing financially, but their marriages were coming back together. They were having relationships with God like I've never seen before. He says all this stuff was happening all because of this crazy business. He says I, I could I could not quit, and so he just kept grinding it out. And as they say, the rest is history. Well, look at Tiger Woods. Everybody says, boy, wouldn't it be great to be as good as Tiger Woods? <laughs> and, a, and a lot of a lot of I mean the the, the golfers are going to know what I'm going to talk about. But those of you who are not yeah. really rabid golf followers, you're, you, this might be that he had a close relationship with his dad. But there's a lot yeah. of athletes that have a close relationship with their dad. What they don't realize is that the dad is the one who pushed him. I mean, when he was two years old, wow. he was hitting 200 balls a day. I mean, he, wow. his dad had him out there, and his dad would stand behind him and throw sand at him, and I mean, would <laughs> honk horns and sirens, and I mean, anything he could to distract him and to throw him off, and you know, he'd make him stand, you know, with one foot in the air. I mean, he just he just <laughs> did everything he could, and, and 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 that's why he became the greatest golfer, right? Which is also, <clears> I think, one of the reasons when his dad passed away is when he went off the deep end and started doing all the crazy that things sense. that happened to him. You know, but um, there there are stories that Tiger Woods would go in golf tournaments, you know, in, in high school, junior high, whatever, and he would go out and play his 18 holes, and then he would go to the driving range and hit a 1,000 golf balls. <laughs> Everybody else was off wow. to go have a drink, and he went back to the driving range to hit a 1,000 golf balls. I mean, you know, <laughs> that's, that's what makes you the greatest, not just because yeah. you happen to be super talented. I love that. Now let's shift gears to your books, and so we can close this on out. Um, as you, you know, when you look back on your 22 books, excluding the current one because it may be your favorite, so let's just exclude that. We'll talk about that in a minute. What are the books before that? What's your, what would you say means the most? Which book means the most to you, and why that you've written? By far, by far and away, I love, I, I like all of my books. I yeah. love I love a number of my books, but I mm-hmm. love 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 one of my <laughs> books, and uh-huh. it's a book called The Angel Inside, and it's oh, yeah. a fictional story. It's twenty thousand words. You can read it in an hour and a half. Uh, it's a fictional story of a young man, twenty eight years old, goes to Europe to find himself. He spends two weeks there. The the entire book is the last afternoon of his vacation. It starts at about – the book starts at about 1 in the afternoon, and he's sitting on a bench. He's completely depressed because he's at the end of his vacation. He hasn't figured anything out about life, and a little old Italian man walks up to him and starts talking to him. And the entire book is the relationship that happens between those two over the course of the remainder of of his last day in in Florence, Italy. And he teaches him life lessons from the life of Michelangelo – who grew up and lived and worked in, in Florence, Italy. And so uh, uh, that's my favorite book. That book has been optioned as a movie. We're getting a screenplay oh, wow. written. Uh, we, uh, we do wine and food tours to Italy around that book. Um, huh. it's, 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 it's my favorite book by far. People tell me that book has changed their life. Um, you know, We're gonna I, had a woman, I had a woman who, who – she built a business making about a million dollars a year, and she says the only reason she started the business was because she read my book. Um, oh, wow. But it's 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 got art in it, it's got history in it, it's got spirituality in it, it's got geography in it, uh, you know, it's got self help in it. It's just um, it, it is by wow. far and away my favorite book, and it's my best selling. It was number two on the Wall Street Journal, number seven on the New York Times. Uh, it was number three overall. 
uh, on Amazon for a week. You know, a lot of times people say, well, it's the number one bestseller, but what they really mean is, you know, seven categories down, you know, it was <laughs> yeah. number one, but this was number three on Amazon all week long. And the only two, the only two books that beat me that week were the pre-release of Harry Potter and oh, wow. the, that was number one for the week. And number two was the lost book of J.R.R. Tolkien that his grandson found huh. in his attic after his grandpa died. Huh. And they had, they had finally released this lost manuscript of J.R.R. Tolkien. And, um, and so uh, I, I, you know, I figure if I'm going to be number three and I have to lose to somebody, it may as well be the greatest fiction uh, series of all time, followed by one of the greatest uh, writers of all time. So that book was um, was my most successful. It's been translated into 14 languages. It just got translated into its 14th language, and um, so that's my that's my favorite book by far and away. What was the hardest book for you to write? Probably this latest one because I write I typically oh, wow. write business fiction. I write fiction, yeah. so short little twenty thousand okay. word stories. Um, mm. I typically write. This one is nonfiction, and it's longer. It's like uh, almost forty thousand words, so it's almost twice as long. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, no, it's uh, it's probably the hardest one that I've written. So tell us a little bit about this book and why you think that we're in the right time for this book. Yeah, this book. Uh, it's about legacy, really. It's about making sure that what you're doing today matters later on, and particularly after you're gone. And so mm-hmm. I talk, uh, you know, a lot about making the most of opportunities, making sure that you're prepared for for those opportunities. Um, I have a, a whole chapter on uh, what I call plot twist: what to happen, what what to do, mm-hmm. and what you thought was going to happen doesn't happen. And the funny thing mm-hmm. is, is I had I was writing it knowing no idea that uh that covid was going to happen so <laughs> that was a giant plot twist for everybody um, oh, wow. so it's it's really just designed to help you do today what you want to be remembered for tomorrow mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah cuz we feel the same way you know like you know we kept putting off this show all last year i, I was like you know we're we're going to interview people we're going to interview people and i sat there and was like um you know what um in the last year, I finally told Sandy, you know what? We've procrastinated enough. We don't. We won't know if we can pull this off if we don't at least take, take that foot and just move forward. Little did we know, like you said, that that we would move forward, things would grow, and then COVID would happen. It would just change the whole course of our show. Yep. Never know when it's going to work, when it's going to happen. So if you want to um, – Tell everybody how they can reach out to you, get your books and stuff like that. That would be awesome. Well, they can find me on Amazon, and uh, we're actually in pre-release now. The book, uh, the book comes out. I don't know when this will play, but the book comes out November third. But it's in uh, pre-order now, and and it'll ship on November third. If you want to go and and get your pre-order, that would be great. Um, otherwise, you can reach me at uh, chriswidener.com. Um, Facebook is Chris Widener Speaker. So. Pretty pretty easy to find me. Twitter is Chris Widener. I love that. You know, we definitely enjoyed having you on the show, and we look forward to having you back down the road. So. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Anytime you need me, I'm here. All right. You have a blessed day. Take care. Thanks. Bye.